Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 99. And I have a special exercise. I don't always do this, but when I do, the children, you are responsible for identifying one word. You've probably heard it a dozen times already. But when we get done reading this psalm, I want you to say that one word that you think that this psalm is trying to tell us about God. Okay? You got it? You going to look for that one word? Okay? All right. Psalm 99, hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray. Our God, we do ask that you would bless this reading, this preaching, the hearing, and the application of this word to our hearts, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, children, what's the one word that God wanted us to get about himself in this psalm? Holy, yes. Okay. All right, we're done. Okay. Yes, holy, that's right. You could... You know, you read this psalm, that one word is there three times. Holy is he, holy is he, holy is he. It's actually there, that phrase is three times. The word holy itself is at least four. Um, But yes, that is the one thing that the psalmist wants us to get about God in this psalm, that he is holy. Now, since we have a home that we're moving to, Precious is, you know, looking at paint schemes and colors, and I have the curse, I mean blessing, of learning all about uh, grayish with a pink undertone and uh, paint qualities that I've never cared about before. And I learned something about paint, and it's called the light reflective value, the LRV. And the light reflective value of paint refers to uh, basically how much light it reflects. You know, it's just a scale of zero to 100, And, you know, some paints are in the 80s and 90s, and it just means they reflect a whole lot of light. And others, darker colors, absorb more light. So you're looking at the light reflective value. Well, the psalmist wants to increase our holiness understanding value. Now, you may be interested to know that paint, and actually no substance, can ever fully reflect 100% of the light that is shown upon it. The light reflective value of any substance will never reach 100%. There will always be a little bit of light that's absorbed. 
Well, similarly, our understanding of God's holiness will never reach 100%. His, he is infinite. We cannot fully comprehend it. And the reality is God's holiness is, you know, up here in the, in the stratosphere and our holiness understanding value is like one or 0.5. But the psalmist wants to increase our holiness understanding value, the, the amount of holiness that we understand, because just like in a bright room, whenever you have a higher light reflective value, the room is more brilliant and it sheds more light on all of the other things that are in the room. Well, increasing our understanding of holiness and God's holiness increases his brilliance in our eyes. And likewise, just like greater light in a room sheds light on the other objects, a greater understanding of God's holiness will increase the visibility, increase the impact of the other attributes of God, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness. And so that's what I want you to see as we move through this psalm, is to have an increased understanding of God's holiness so that it increases the visibility of the rest of God's attributes in your eyes. And my main theme, my thesis statement you could say for this psalm as we move through it is this, that God's holiness demands justice, which results in forgiveness and worship. God's holiness demands justice, which results in forgiveness and worship because of how he meets the demand for his justice. And so I hope this increases our understanding of his holiness and our adoration and love for him. Well, as we already identified the main theme of the psalm, the Lord is holy, verse 3, verse 5, verse 9. What does it mean for God to be holy? What is the definition of holiness? Well, it really covers two main things, and this is not comprehensive, but the two main ways in which God is holy Holiness, first of all, means a set-apartness, a separateness from something. And so God is set apart from his creation, and he is set apart in his ethical purity, moral purity. God is set apart from his creation substantially and set apart from his creation morally and ethically. He is different. He is set apart from us. I want to mention first, God is separate substantially. You know, by God's separateness, he is greater than creation and he's sovereign over creation. Verse one, he reigns. Verse two, he is great. And verse, the latter part of verse two, he is exalted. God is above, over, and separate from his creation. That's what I mean when I say God is separate substantially. Creation is one substance, a created substance. God is something else. First Samuel 2 says, there is no one holy like Yahweh. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Now, one Bible commentator that I uh, listen to on occasion, and he, some people, he mentioned this, some people think of God as simply a bigger version of a human. Like he's just the biggest fish in the fish tank. God is not just the biggest fish in the fish tank. God is not in the tank. He is not in this tank of creation. He is separate from it. 
all of created space, the, the difference between God and creation is more akin to the difference between the human outside of the fish tank and the fish inside the tank. There's a vast difference, right? There is a separateness. Well, even a human and a fish are created beings. God is uncreated, existing before heaven, earth, hell, air, matter, fish and humans. He is uncreated, separate, holy in that sense, different from creation. Secondly, as as I mentioned, God is separate and set apart morally, ethically, that he is perfectly righteous. The scripture says that he is too holy to look upon sin from Habakkuk 1.13. That is, he can't tolerate sin. And now when you just think about tolerance of sin and how how regularly we commit it on a daily basis, you see our general tolerance of sin. God is too holy, too morally, ethically pure to tolerate sin. When Isaiah is presented with, when Isaiah comes before the Lord in a vision in Isaiah 6, and the angels are crying out, the seraphim, the burning ones are saying, holy, holy, holy. You know, Isaiah is struck. When he encounters the holiness of God, what does he say? Woe is me. I am undone. I am unraveled, for I am a man of unclean lips. My lips tolerate unholiness. My lips tolerate uncleanness. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And so we see in Isaiah the same thing that this psalmist mentions. What does coming before a holy God produce? It produces a healthy trembling. Verse one, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Our our confession says that whenever we read the word, our faith responds in in an appropriate way to whatever the scripture is, that it clings to the promises and that our faith trembles at the threatenings. Whenever we, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, come before a psalm and we see God's holy separateness, his moral purity, and how much we tolerate sin, it should create in us that healthy trembling that we would lament over our sin even more and that we would have a hatred, hatred of sin. Psalm 97 says, O you who love Yahweh, hate evil. That we are called to be haters of sin, just like God is a hater and, and a, a one who does not tolerate sin. Now, Leif, my son, he learned about gravity um, pretty early on, you know, maybe middle of the road. I don't, I don't know how old the uh, kids are when they learn about gravity, but now he has a healthy fear of the damaging consequences of the dangerousness of falling off of something. If he was standing up here on this pulpit, I couldn't convince him to jump down. He'd say, Daddy, that's too high. He knows at such a young age the inherent danger of falling from too great a height. What if our understanding of God's holiness could be more and more inherent 
like our understanding of the danger of gravity. It's a regular thing. We know it. It's instinctive. We know the danger, the bad results, the horror that will come from falling from a skyscraper. That's the kind of understanding that we want to work towards in God's holiness, a regular inculcation of the hatred of sin, that this is unacceptable because part of our mortification of our sin, part of the putting to death of our sin, it is certainly prayer. It is certainly the changing of external behaviors to, to enable heart change. You know, we, we don't drive a certain way. We don't, we don't uh, go to a certain website. We don't do these certain things that, that will help cultivate heart change. But part of it is also simply an increased understanding of holiness and hatred of sin. What if we could just view it more like God and produce this healthy trembling? It would help us in our own sanctification. A guy named uh, John Bloom wrote an article on Desiring God, which is John Piper's ministry, desiringgod.org. And he wrote this, the loss of the sense of God's holiness always produces loss of the sense of sin's sinfulness. When God is not feared, sin is not feared. The loss of the sense of God's holiness always produces the loss of the sense of sin's sinfulness. Now, as I talked about the hatred of sin, I want to contrast that, or I should distinguish that from self-hatred. What happens to you, and I'll say what often happens to me after we commit the sin that we struggle with, that we've committed again, we've given into it, we've reacted in a certain way, we've done a certain thing, and it turns, it turns inward into, you did it again, you're such a disappointment, how could you again? And that is a form of what I'm going to call self-hatred, that is not what we want. Now, there is a, there is a valid um, feeling of guilt and shame over our sin that should then immediately turn us in repentance and faith to God. And then sin hatred, not self-hatred. So the guilt and shame that you feel when you sin should turn you immediately in repentance and faith to God and then turn to sin hatred, not self-hatred and loathing over how disappointing. You've done it again and again and again. So uh, exhortation there, sin hatred, hatred of sin versus self-hatred and self-loathing. And well, what does this holiness produce? Verses three and five, it produces praise. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Verse five, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. God is deserving of praise simply for who he is who he is in his goodness, in his righteousness, in all of his perfections. He deserves our praise. And that's what this holy trembling and turning to him and sin hatred produces as we worship and exalt him. You know, think of your favorite sports hero, your favorite author, your favorite director, your favorite war hero. We've got a lot of history buffs and military retirees or active individuals in here? Who is that favorite, honored, admired person? Well, when you talk to somebody else about that, or when you, are, when you think about them, 
let their characters and qualities remind you of the characters and qualities of God. What is it about that author, about that hero? Is it their courage? Is it the fact that they're willing to, to stand out against the crowd? Is it their strength? Is it their compassion? All of those are little pictures, images. Every hero that we have is a dim reflection of God himself. And so when you exalt heroes in your mind, let that remind you of the one exalted hero who is Jesus, who is God himself. Let's exalt Yahweh's name. Exalt Yahweh our God. That's what verse 5 says, the covenant-keeping God. Worship at his footstool. Well, because God stands out in a good way, in his holiness, in his perfect righteousness, he demands justice. Look in verse four. The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Every single line, justice, equity, executed justice and righteousness, which is the implication of some, you know, or justice is the implication of someone who is righteous that they're going to do what is just. As I thought about God's justice and that his holiness and hatred of sin demands justice, I thought about the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, Y'all still learn the Pledge of Allegiance school, perhaps, maybe? It's one of those things where you have to say the whole thing in your brain before you get to like, okay, what are the words? One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And what do we mean when we say that? Liberty and justice for all those who are living here in this nation as we pledge allegiance to this nation. Liberty and justice for all. Have you ever thought about justice for God? Have you ever heard someone say, you know, what about justice for God? We, we often care about justice for ourselves, but God is the offended party. God is the one who has been dealt with unjustly by us and deserves justice. You know, the, the perfect judge, you've heard this illustration before, and I'll say it again. The perfect righteous judge does not let the murderer walk free. That is wrong. That is evil. That is wicked. What does the just judge do? Condemns the unrighteous evildoer. So why don't we cry out? Why don't you hear people crying out, justice for God, the offended party? Because in our heart of hearts, mankind knows we are on the receiving end of that justice. That's why we don't cry out justice for God, because we are the ones who deserve it. From Romans 1, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders. I won't even go through the whole list. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you hear what Romans 1 is alleging? Everyone knows, even if they don't know the word that deeply, they know in their conscience God's righteous decree that what I do deserves death. 
And that's why we don't cry out. That's why the world doesn't cry out justice for God, because I know God's righteous decree that I deserve to die. And not only do I do them, I give approval to those who practice them. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Well, God demands justice and he, and we see that he executes justice and righteousness in Jacob. What's going on here in this Psalm? Take a look at the different words that should give you an indication of where this is taking place. So num- verse one, you have, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Okay, the cherubim were the angels that were on top of the Ark of the Covenant that was inside the Holy of Holies where no one could go into except the priest one time a year. So it's temple language. He's enthroned on the cherubim. This is in Zion. This is Jerusalem. Verse five, worship at his footstool. That Holy of Holies, that special presence of God is referred to as the footstool. And in verse seven, in the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. So this is the, this is the great cloud that descends upon the tabernacle and the temple where the priests would go in, into the Holy of Holies. Okay. And lastly, in verse nine, worship at his holy mountain. What I want to, what I'm asserting here, what I think the Psalm is very clear in is that this is something, this, the vision, the imagery that we have is that this is at the temple in worship in some way. I wouldn't be surprised if this Psalm was sung on the day of atonement. Whenever the priest went into that Holy of Holies, that one time of year, that these themes are being sung about. Well, the Old Testament saints didn't have the book of Romans, <laughs> they, they, but they still know God's righteous decree that we deserve to die for these things. And so what do they see on the day of atonement? What do they see regularly in the Old Testament? Sacrifices sacrifices, sacrifices, animal sacrifices. I almost wondered, I wondered what it would be like if we had an animal sacrifice, like how vivid, how terrible, you know, would that make us, how terrible would that be for us to actually visualize this is what sin deserves, this death of this animal. Really, it's, it's my death. The Old Testament saint knows it's my death that God's holiness demands, but I am placing my hands on this animal, identifying myself with this substitute, and God is going to slay the substitute instead of me, and then that animal is slain. And we don't have bloody sacrifices. We have, what do we have? We actually have a reminder of this, don't we? in the Lord's Supper. When you come to the Lord's Supper, no, it's not a bloody animal sacrifice, but it is a reminder of what sin deserves. The justice of God, this, the slaying of the son, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood. That's what we see. That's part of what we're reminded of in the Lord's Supper. This is what holiness and justice demand. But we remember not just what God's holiness demands, when we take part in the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of what in his love he provides. 
So not only what holiness demands, but what God in his love provides. And God provides a mediator to meet him. Look in verse six and seven. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. Well, what is a mediator? A mediator is someone who goes between two parties, two individuals who are at odds with one another. You have one party who is angry or upset at odds with another, and the mediator goes between them to work toward a solution. That's what a mediator does in sort of our modern legal context. Well, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and man, the two parties at odds with one another is doing that exact same thing. And it's prefigured in the actions of the priests. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, they call upon God. Well, Hebrews 5 says, Jesus offered up loud cries and was heard by God. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel are meeting with God in the pillar of cloud that, is, that descends upon the Holy of Holies. They're meeting with God in that cloud. And that pillar, that presence of God is God's presence with his people. Well, John 1 says that Jesus tabernacled among us, that he dwelt among us, that the presence that was in the Old Testament is actualized, made even more real in the new in Jesus. Verse 7 they kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave to them. Again, what's the image that's going on here? Temple worship, temple sacrifices. They are keeping the sacrificial statutes and ceremonies that God has put in place. What does the New Testament remind us? When Christ appeared as a high priest, these priests prefigured the one high priest who is Jesus. When Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus goes into the real holy of holies, of which the earthly tabernacle and temple was only a picture. He enters the real holy of holies by his blood and secures redemption for us as the sacrifice that we identify with. So God provides Jesus to satisfy his own justice. I mean, this is gospel 101 message statement. God's holiness demands justice. We are on the receiving end of it, but God provides a substitute in Jesus Christ to meet the demand, the death penalty for his own justice. And that is why it results in our forgiveness and our worship of him. Romans 3 says that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means a wrath-satisfying sacrifice or a justice-satisfying sacrifice, you could say. God put forward Christ as a satisfying sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be, hear this, both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
how does the just judge get off with saying your sins are forgiven? That's wicked, right? We said that. He executes his justice upon Christ. So God is able to say, I have executed the penalty for sin in the person of Christ. Therefore, you are forgiven. I am both just and the justifier, the declaring not guilty of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is the gospel. God maintains his integrity as a holy and just judge because he lays it upon Christ. And this is why the psalmist can say, as I mentioned in verse eight, you were a forgiving God to them. Oh Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoing. And what's going on here in this verse? You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. This verse is indicating that number one, we are forgiven in Jesus Christ. But number two, the consequences of our sin in our lives don't go away. And God will chastise and discipline us in time as we live our lives when we sin. That's what the psalmist is saying about Moses and Aaron and Samuel. You forgave them, but we see Moses fall far short. We see Aaron fall far short. And they both received the Lord's discipline. I mean, Moses... Moses wasn't even permitted to go into the promised land because of the sin that he committed. I was reading one of the commentators on this, good old Scotsman, Alexander McLaren, and he's mentioned this. You know, some have the idea that, well, God's forgiveness comes from his love, but his chastisement and his discipline comes from his holiness. And McLaren said this, both forgiveness and scourging or forgiveness and discipline are issued from holy love. Hebrews 12 reminds us that it's for your good because God loves you, that God is disciplining you, that it's not a judicial penalty, but it is paternal fatherly chastisement. And isn't that magnificent about God, that he can fully absolve and forgive us for our sins for all eternity. But in doing that, he doesn't let you just wallow in your sin when you live your daily life, simply because it's forgiven in eternity. He actually, because he still loves you, exercises discipline and chastisement in your life. And McLaren brought up the example of two alcoholics. You know, you've got one, both of them are alcoholics their whole life. And one comes to faith in Christ. And he says, does either one of them have a less damaged liver? Does either one of them, you know, have any less damaged and broken relationships because of the sin that has compounded and accumulated over their life? God brings holy, just wrath upon Christ, but also holy, loving, fatherly discipline in our lives when we sin. The eternal penalty is dealt with, but God chastises us in a good, holy, fatherly way, an avenger of our wrongdoings in that sense. Well, the first portion of this sermon, maybe a lot of this sermon, <laughs> has seemed like a heavy hit. God's holiness, the demand that 
the demand that it creates for justice upon us. But think of that heavy hit like a wave of the ocean. What would happen if you were walking towards the shore and you, you let the wave hit you, but it doesn't phase you? It doesn't stop you. God's holiness doesn't stop you. You just keep walking forward. What happens? You drown in the depths. Let God's holiness strike you. Let it hit you like a punch even so that you would fall upon the bed, upon the mercy, upon the loving forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Don't let God's holiness, uh, don't be unfazed by it. Let it strike you so you fall down upon that bed of God's love and forgiveness because of what he's done in Christ. Because what did God in Christ do? He laid that punch. He laid the drowning waves upon Jesus. He took the penalty for us. It pleased the Lord to crush him, to lay on him the iniquity of us all. This is our God, holy unapproachable, terrifying to sinners who would satisfy his own justice due to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so would the understanding of God's holiness enhance the brilliance of him and enhance our understanding of the mercy and forgiveness that he offers in Jesus Christ. And would it then drive us to worship at his holy mountain. God's holiness demands justice. And because his justice is met in the person of Christ, it results in our forgiveness and worship. That, that last point, application, right after the sermon, our worship. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you that you have revealed these things to us that you show us who you are. And in showing us who you are, we see the contrast with ourselves. Lord, if there be any here who have not yet come to grips with the reality of your holiness, the justice that is demanded by it, Lord, would you draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ? Would they fall upon him? Fall upon him in faith, knowing that he is the propitiation the justice-satisfying sacrifice for sinners who have faith in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.